Good afternoon. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, coming to you from southwestern Colorado on the 11th day of May, 2023. This will be lecture number 64 in our series, Immunoepigenetics. So let's pick up where we were yesterday. I was beginning a conversation about the oxidative hypothesis of atherosclerosis. As it turns out, oxidative metabolism is far more significant than the specific species of molecular arrangement that becomes oxidized. Of course, I'm referring to cholesterol. So we know from multiple studies, both in murine models, as well as in human studies that oxidative damage to low-density lipoproteins seems to be associated with some of the early etiology of prodromal atherosclerosis. Whether or not that same oxidative metabolism to the LDL is always associated with the production of oxysterol is certainly not absolute. Likewise, only the prodromal stages seem to have a major role here. Once atherosclerosis starts, of course, that is an inflammatory response. And it's most often associated with macrophage morphological alteration to foam cells, which has to do with rampant oxidative metabolism of membrane lipid components, particularly of fatty acids, with more than one double bond. Likewise, the foam cell apparatus is associated with DNA oxidative damage, protein oxidative damage, and the dissimilation of endomembranous systems, thus inducing a pro-inflammatory response from endothelia and then via the diapodesis of inflammatory cells, initially, as I said, macrophages, then prolonging, inducing, and increasing the severity of the atherosclerosis, generating plaque. Now, this plaque is a lipopolysaccharide matrix, which also has a great deal of proteinaceous component associated with it. The plaque then, once it's developing, starts to aggregate and self-cohere, thus mediating a decrease in blood flow. That decrease in blood flow then, particularly in major arterioles in the cardiovascular system, can lead to such things as heart attack and stroke. That's a very quick preliminary discussion there. You know that I spent a lot more time on the etiology of these major diseases in the past. Right now, we're doing immunoepigenetics. I just wanted to lay down the pathological court for you. So LDL-induced damage via oxidative metabolism will then subsequently trigger an endothelial damage and then finally plaque development. Now, there are several lipid species, including cholesterol, as a substrate for oxidative metabolism. 
more importantly, really, because of the aggregate amount, are polyunsaturated fatty acids and also protein autooxidation that can lead to the continued accumulation of the plaque. But we want to talk today about oxysterols. <clears throat> so there have been many oxysterols that have been isolated and characterized, both from the structural relationships and the enzymatic pathways that generate uh, these particular components of metabolism. A lot of the enzymes involved in oxysterol biosynthesis actually are themselves oxygenases. And oxygenases functioning in an environment with very low levels or reduced levels of the normal reductance, which would remove perhaps um, certain molecular species with unpaired electrons, those being radicals. Uh, particularly hydroperoxy radicals are generated. Now, they can be quenched by NADPH in association with ascorbic acid, tocopherol, and, of course, glutathione. Selenium plays a role in much of that metabolism as well, as you know. So oxysterols, when they are generated, one of the more potent oxysterols has been the one called 7-keto cholesterol, or 7-KC. That's where there's an oxidation at the C7 position on the cyclopentanophenanthrene ring structure. Now, those are found, the particular C7 oxysterols are found increased in certain stages of certain human atherosclerotic plaque. You also can detect 7-ketocholesterol in the plasma of patients that are particularly prone to cardiovascular risk, including heart attack and stroke. And where you find the 7-ketocholesterols uh, is most often in what are known as oxidative low-density lipoprotein fragments. So 7-KC is known to be a highly toxic oxysterol, particularly when it's studied in the murine model. Now, the murine model, remember, has a lot of flaws. One of them is that when you feed excessive amounts of cholesterol on the diet, remember that these animals are only mildly omnivorous. So particular, a lot of these studies where you're adding cholesterol, where there wouldn't be that much cholesterol in the diet, is itself an aberration of an experiment, right? It's poorly designed. But not only that, the regulation of cholesterol metabolism in rodents is quite different than the regulation of cholesterol in humans. And what is found in human cholesterol regulation of, of metabolism is different also from other primates. Now, this is not something that's often discussed when we discuss oxysterols. But as a lipid biochemist, I spent years studying this in the scientific literature. I've not contributed to that literature. I haven't published it, but I've read it, and I keep up to date on it. And I can tell you that oxysterol metabolism in human cells is also not exactly carried over into the intact human system. 
because many of the cells that are used will be exhausted from normal repertoire of regulatory reductive processes, particularly to do studies. So the human system is the intact one, and often those kinds of studies can't be conducted because you would need to draw multiple metabolic pathways together and do a large biochemical screening of multiple tissues as well as alterations in serum. And then, of course, because you're talking about lipids, all the particular molecular species of lipoproteins and other serum proteins like albumin, as those proteins change their fatty acid composition. It's a very difficult thing to do when you have a living system because you have to recognize that these are rapidly changing molecular environments. And it is the rapid change and then the lack of removal of certain species of oxysterols, which are more potent than others, often going undetected because of the complexity of the system and the difficulty in screening massively um, all these different tissue and cell profiles in a human patient. So you get the story I'm talking about. But So I want to emphasize that. But here again, in murine models and also in cell culture, 7-keto cholesterol seems to be particularly toxic because you seem to uh, be able to observe higher levels of it. There's more abundance in the atherosclerotic plaques. Okay. Now, here's where this interest becomes interesting to me. Isocitrate dehydrogenase 2, recall, that's IDH2, is a critical component of mitochondrial metabolism. No less because it is a controlling mechanism for the production of antioxidants. As you will recall, IDH2 will generate NADPH mitochondrially. And that will maintain control not only of the eruption of reactive oxygen, but also to maintain the normal isocitrate dehydrogenase oxidative decarboxylation of isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate, which, as you recall, is necessary to control demethylase activity and thus remove the, we'll call it, repression of gene expression because of hypermethylation that can be caused by the lack of alpha-ketoglutarate. Right? Because alpha-ketoglutarate will function to activate the three different molecular species of demethylases I talked about just yesterday afternoon, 24 hours ago. Okay. Now, back to this NADPH. You know, if you know the glutathione cycle, that NADPH is necessary to regenerate reduced glutathione, that's GSH, because glutathione will oxidize to GSSG, it's a disulfide bridge, and you have to re-reduce that oxidized GSSG, because it's to cysteine, recall, making that disulfide, back to monomeric glutathione with the free SH group. And so you realize that NADPH and glutathione make a 
axis of reductive metabolism to remove reactive oxygen species, including radicals, including hydroperoxy fatty acids and oxysterols. Thus, I can say that IDH2 activation clearly will play a critical role in enhancing the mitochondrial glutathione antioxidant defense network. And it can, when it is playing this role specifically because of damage caused by autooxidation, such as in humans, an obesogenic environment, that IDH2 mediated NADPH production in association with glutathione metabolism will protect the system from oxidative damage. Okay. Now, I want you to recall the enzyme malic enzyme or ME. Now, ME plays a role in atherosclerosis and it also plays a role in cancer cells metabolism. Now, let's take a look at a given cell. Remember that glucose can be taken up via glucose transporters. Those are the glute and glute transport proteins. When glucose is transported into a cell, it will be converted faithfully if there is no active control to mitigate a decrease in glycolysis. Pyruvic acid is generated. Remember that pyruvate can be metabolized via lactate dehydrogenase to lactic acid, right? Of course. Lactate will then leave that cell. Remember, if there's a deficiency in lactic acid dehydrogenase, particularly the A form, you can run into problems with glycolytic flux. There's multiple reasons for this. I gave you two or three over the last two or three days, I would just remind you that pyruvate has to be metabolized and that you have to recycle NADH back to NAD, because NAD is necessary for one of the intermediate enzymes in the pathway of glycolysis. Remember that's glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase. Okay? And when all that's functioning correctly, pyruvate will enter the mitochondrion and it will be oxidative to decarboxylated to acetyl-CoA. You also know pyruvate can be carboxylated to oxaloacetic acid. So oxaloacetic acid and acetyl-CoA, some of the acetyl-CoA coming from that oxidative decarboxylation of pyruvate, and some of it, of course, coming faithfully from the beta-oxidation of fatty acids. And the transamination and ultimate degeneration or um, removal of the carbon skeleton from the alpha-keto acids generated after deamination or transamination, both the amino acids and fatty acids can also generate acetyl-CoA. So you have acetyl-CoA in a healthy cell coming from glycolysis coming from some fatty acid oxidation, and coming some, from some amino acid oxidative metabolism. Okay, that's what I meant by degeneration. I mean, breaking down the amino acids, right? Amino acid catabolism would have been a better word. All right. Now, acetyl-CoA will combine with OAA, 
and it will form citric acid in the mitochondria, and you know this. Citrate will then be converted to cisaconitate, then to D-isocitrate, then to alpha-ketoglutarate. And alpha-ketoglutarate to succinyl-CoA, and then succinyl-CoA dehydrogenase to succinate, then to fumarate, via fumarase, and then to malate. I'm just completing the TCA cycle for you. Remember along the way, you're making a lot of NADH, mitochondrially, which can be then reoxidized in the electron transport chain and via proton pumping across the inner mitochondrial membrane and, and then ubiquinol transporting as a soluble carrier of electrons, moving from complex one to two to three and onward all the way to the terminal cytochrome C oxidase, generating that proton pumping circuit to run protons through the F0, F1 proton pumping ATPase in the inner mitochondrial membrane making ATP thus a bioenergetic system that is open to, to the environment both intramitochondrially and intercellularly because of its association with the cytosol. And then ultimately, of course, the extracellular phenomenon of taking up glucose and releasing lactate, right? And we haven't talked about the mobilization of fatty acids from central internal stores like lipid droplets, depending on the cell type, or from the uptake of fatty acids from such receptors as the CD36 orphan receptor. Now, I want you to also keep in mind that during the oxidation of carbon from glycolysis, which we would basically could just fundamentally say the TCA cycle can run along with the production, again, of acetyl-CoA from fatty acids, etc., etc. Remember that glutamine and glutaminolysis can convert then to glutamic acid, and then transamination to alpha-ketoglutarate. That's the component then of malate aspartate show can be functioning. Now, let's think about fumarate to malate. Malate will go to OAA via malate dehydrogenase, NAD form. But mitochondrial malate can also react with the enzyme malic enzyme 2, and that's ME2, and ME3. ME2 will utilize NAD or NAD, NADH or NADPH. ME3 will only use NADPH. Depending on the isoform being activated, ME2 or ME3, you will convert malate to pyruvate, okay? And you will generate either NADH or NADPH. Now keep that in mind in the mitochondria. Because I said the malic enzyme can be functioning inside the mitochondria, and I don't want you to think that there isn't a malic enzyme in the cytoplasm, because there most certainly is. Now, when citrate leaves the mitochondrion because of a buildup of intramitocellic NADH levels, thus tuning down the subsequent dehydrogenase in the TCA cycle, the enzyme ATP citrate lies, right? That particular enzyme will generate, it will, it will take citrate and form 
oxaloacetic acid and acetyl-CoA, right? That's the citrate lyase reaction. Now, the acetyl-CoA can do multiple things in the mitochondrion, I mean, in the cytoplasm. It can be run through the acetyl-carcarboxylase reaction to make malonyl-CoA, and then the acetyl-CoA and malonyl-CoA can be transesterified to acyl carrier protein and then be used as two and three carbon substrates for initializing and then promoting chain elongation of fatty acid synthesis cytosolic. That's how you can synthesize fat, that's how the cell can synthesize fatty acids from carbon coming ultimately from citric acid in, in that uh, organelle. Now, fatty acid synthesis will make fatty acids, but acetyl-CoA will also be generating HMG-CoA, HMG-CoA, that's hydroxymethylglutyryl-CoA, and hydroxymethylglutyryl-CoA will synthesize, will, oh, excuse me, will be the substrate for isopentaneopyrophosphate and dimethylallylpyrophosphate, and therefore leading to multiple prenal lipid pathways, including that generating cholesterol. Now, what about the oxalacetic acid coming from the citrate lyase? Oxalacetic acid can be reacted with melatehydrogenase isoform cytosolic, making malate. What about the malate? The malate can run back into the mitochondrion, completing that malate aspartate circuit, or even the malate citrate or malate pyruvate circuits. These are just carboxylic acid transporters, don't you know? But cytosolic malate can also be converted by a malic enzyme, NADPH dependent, and it will generate again pyruvate. So now you have a couple making pyruvate, that is a metabolic couple, regenerating pyruvate, sending it back into the mitochondrion. And you can see that you're going to be building up NADPH cytosolically and mitochondrially. Okay. This is very important to keep in mind because there's a central role of malic enzymes in the normal physiological response, but also in pathophysiological, such as atherosclerosis and cancer cell metabolism. So malic enzyme located within the cytoplasmic, that would be ME1, and the mitochondrial, remember ME1, ME2, ME3, will catalyze the oxidative decarboxylation of malate to pyruvate, concomitantly storing reducing equivalence in the form of NADPH, that would be ME1, ME2, and ME3, or NADH, ME2, will also carry out that reaction. So the NADPH generator will serve multiple biochemical functions, such as working through the glutathione pathway to remove reactive oxygen. So you have the glutathione pathway. You also have a thioredoxin reductase pathway. I always like to remind people of that. So glutathione and thioredoxin reductase pathway will then contribute to ROS signaling via the nitric oxide pathway 
and the multiple forms of oxygenase pathways, including cyclooxygenase, lipoxygenase, and P450 mono and dioxygenases. Okay? That can all be occurring now because you have NADPH in the system. I will tell you one more thing because it just came to mind. Fatty acid desaturation is also NADPH dependent. That's correct. So now you have yet another very critical pathway in the cell, pumping double bonds into preformed fatty acids, either the monoenes that are coming from you know, coming from de de novo fatty acid synthesis and the delta-9 desaturates to make delta-9, 18-colon-1 uh, oleic acid, desaturating that fatty acid, or taking in preformed essential fatty acids, linoleic and linolenic, delta-6-9 to delta-6-9-12, um, uh, excuse me, 9-12-15, and the 9-12-15, that alpha-linolenic acid, then going on to make omega-3 fatty acids, whereas the linoleic acid will go on because of desaturation pathways to make the omega-6 profiled pathway. Final product of that is typically considered to be arachidone, 20 colon 4. Final product of those desaturations on the omega-3 series most often are described as icosapentanoate and docosapentanohexanoate. So you have DHA, docosahexanoate, and you have EPA, icosapentanoate. Those are the omega-3s. You also have some isomers of that EPA, other lower carbon number, uh, omega-6 series, which I'm not going to talk about just now. So you have the reduction of fatty acids. You also have you also have the de novo synthesis, right? Because de novo fatty acid synthesis also requires NADPH because it's reductive biosynthesis. What else requires NADPH? Reductive biosynthetic pathways such as all the prenolipids, including ultimately one of them we like to talk about, cholesterol, which becomes a membrane lipid along with fatty acids esterified, for example, to glycerol backbone or amid-linked or otherwise associated with sphingolipids, also making compartmental associations within the endomembranous compartments. Okay? So this means that acetyl-CoA in the cytoplasm has a very, very important role coming from citrate because basically that means there is a pyruvate malate cycle going on where pyruvate goes in, malate comes out to, to be functional to, for the malic enzyme, or it can be reversed depending on the stoichiometry and ratios of reducing equivalents, particularly NAD to P to NADPH and NAD to NADH, right? So these cycles can be reversed, as you know. For example, if you're running gluconeogenesis, or you're running also, remember, the oxidative pentose phosphate pathway, because this could be setting up a cell cycle, making that all-important uh, ribose 5-phosphate after decarboxylation of the 6-phosphonoglucanate, right, that, de that decarboxylating dehydrogenase, so that you can run then what? Nucleic acid biosynthesis, right? And also feeding back in via fructose 6-phosphate, and glycerol 3-phosphate, glycerol 3-phosphate back into the glycolytic pathway, continuing to pump carbons down to pyruvate and running that whole pathway we just went through. Right? All right. Now, 
I want you to keep in mind that ME1, that is the malic enzyme in the uh, cytoplasm, participates in the Warburg phenomena. You know what that is? You surely should. That's aerobic glycolysis, even in the presence of plenty of molecular oxygen. What do you find in the Warburg effect? In cancer cells, and also in a subdued, although it's not typically called that, in T lymphocytes. When T lymphocytes become particularly aerobically glycolytic for division and for the production of proinflammatory cytokines during an active infection or an autoimmune response or also in altered states during a tumorigenic pathway system. Okay? All right. Because, you know, the Warburg effect is going to be glycolytic and you're going to be also lactic, lactic acid secreting those cells, right? Those are the kinds of biochemical signatures we find, cancer cells, tumors, and also, interestingly, in certain activated forms of lymphocytes in terms of their um, bioenergetics. Now, lactate generated from the system and leaving, say, a prodromal tumor cell can actually serve enough paracrine energy just to keep tumor cells going when glucose levels start to diminish. Okay? So, Again, keep in mind that glucose can be, can be converted via the glycolytic pathway as it's being pumped into cancer cells or into cells that are undergoing oxidative damage, such as the generation of endothelial cell atherosclerotic plaque. But also glucose can be metabolized via the 